a word of prayer here, and then we can get in. I should move to the chair, huh? We can get into our study. Yeah. If you fall asleep over there and start snoring, I'll just throw. I had a teacher who used Eraser. to throw erasers at us. <laughs> so, all right, let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this Sabbath day and for the blessings that you give to us, uh, continual blessings, and your love and mercy towards us. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us now as we, we get into Daniel chapter 2. We pray for discernment and uh, have a, a willing and open and teachable spirit. Uh, we thank you for hearing this prayer. This is asked in the name of Jesus, who's worthy. Amen. Okay, in a previous lesson uh, last week and, and even in the lectures, we are looking at Jesus uh, and find that He is the Messiah. He's the theme of the Bible. I don't think too many people would disagree with that. And that includes prophecy. And so now we're going to look at the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. We're going to see if indeed this theme does continue, if we find Jesus in here. But a little preliminary we'll, we'll go through here. Question 1 asks, may we understand prophecy? And I know that some of this may be review uh, for us, but it's good to, to review these things. Uh, one day we will be called before people, maybe judges and magistrates or whatever, to give an answer for our faith, and they may ask us these particular questions or maybe just somebody that you work with you know and uh, and so can we understand prophecy let's take a look at uh, 2 Peter 1 verses 19 to 21 and what we we did last week when we we started we looked these up individually which takes time and the idea is you know now we take the the, the studies home and hopefully you've been able to do these studies and then when you come in the next week we just uh, kind of review them so second um, Peter 1 verses 19 to 21 here Peter says we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day <clears throat> dawn and the day star rise in your hearts knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, or, in other words, one's own interpretation. He was referring to the prophet who originally would have given the prophecy. He wasn't giving a private interpretation because he was, uh, as he says in the next verse, the prophecy came not of old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? The The Holy Spirit. So, what we find in prophecy isn't the particular prophet's uh, interpretation. It's what the Holy Spirit has inspired the prophet to to share with us. Um, so can we understand prophecy according to what Peter is is telling us here? The answer would be why? Yes. Yes. He's a, you know he's advising us. Why would he advise us to heed something if it was impossible for us to heed it? Right? You know? Now, in a large measure, Peter and his companions, they derived their convictions concerning the mission of Christ. How? I mean, they lived with Jesus for basically three and a half years, didn't they? But it wasn't, not, it wasn't necessarily just that they lived with Him and they saw Him that convicted them that He was the Messiah. What was it that really convicted them? Any ideas? Excuse me. What really convicted them, it wasn't 
uh, don't get me wrong, they saw his character, and that was that that meant a lot. But it was that he fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. See? And this knowledge added to their personal acquaintance with him during his ministry here. And so that really grounded them in the faith. So not only was Jesus going about doing all these righteous works and he would perform miracles and you know, but miracles don't doesn't uh, mean that the person is from God, does it? Right? So it was these prophecies. And here Peter's talking about this. When he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, Peter's kind of referring to, I mean, he was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He experienced that. But what he's saying now is, we actually have more than that. We have the word of prophecy. And he's fulfilling prophecy, and that's what convicts us that he is the Christ. See, and this is what Peter's talking about here. So, yeah, we can understand prophecy, and that's it's history in advance. God wants us to understand what's going to happen so that, that we can be prepared for it. Um, question number two, what did Christ say of Daniel's prophecy? Matthew 24 and verse 15. Daniel, uh, uh, Jesus referred directly to Daniel here, didn't he? Now, all they had were the Old Testament at that time. Isn't that true? The Old Testament writings. You know, Isaiah. Uh, 66 chapters in Isaiah is essentially 66 books in the Bible. It's like a mini Bible, essentially. They had these, and, and Jesus, when He would quote certain things, He was actually quoting Old Testament. But He referred to Daniel by name. Are we and, looking up the Scriptures, or are we on the answer, or are you just wondering? Just the answers. What did... What did Christ say of Daniel's prophecy? That we should understand it. <laughs> well, yeah. He let's look Matthew twenty four. Let him understand. Yeah, saying. let him understand. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. So your answer is right. He's telling us. He's directing us to what the prophecies that are found where in the book of Daniel. For they're going to give us what? They're going to give us insight into the future. Insight that we have to have in order to be prepared for what's going to happen before Jesus comes back. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to go into the book of Daniel. We're going to go to Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to take a look at what we find here in Daniel chapter 2. There's an in-depth look, a look at this king's dream. That's why this lesson is entitled A King's Dream. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Babylon was the superpower of that time, uh, what you would refer to as the civilized world. Um, just two years previous to the events we're going to look at here, the nation of Israel, they had been invaded. And you know why he invaded Israel? You know, every once in a while, Israel would rebel against who was... Yeah, who was who was uh, um, uh, their master, so to speak? And Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, they got finally got sick of it, and they went in. Actually, he went in it several times, and he, you know, to put it in my terms, he'd spank them, and then go back, and they'd behave for a while, and then they'd misbehave, and he'd go back in. And so, 
here they they've been invaded, and then he this time it was he was a little bit more stern, and he took captives with him to Babylon. And among those captives, usually what they would do, they would take royalty because the royalty tended to be the more educated of the the populace. And so they and plus as a trophy, see, you, your gods had delivered you know this kingdom to you, so. Um, they carried Daniel and his three friends. They were part of, you know, family royalty there, and uh, <clears throat> they carried them away into Babylon. And then we find that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had many things on his mind. He was actually thinking about the future. God does God know what we think in our minds and in our hearts? Yeah, He does. And he noticed that Nebuchadnezzar had these questions about the future of the world. And so it's very interesting. Uh, the Bible tells us that God communicates to His people through prophets, and a lot of times He does it with visions and dreams, doesn't He? But here we have the king, a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was shown a dream from God. Now it's interesting how this came about. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, his, his kingdom was powerful. He had basically, he had everything that you probably would think you would want. You know, but he had a dream one night, and the God of Heaven gave him this dream. Question three: Why was Nebuchadnezzar troubled? He had a bad dream, <laughs> and it wasn't just that he had a bad dream. It says there in Daniel two and verse one: And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep broke from him. So he not only it's called a dream, but it more likely a better uh, description would be he had a nightmare because it woke him up. Usually when you have a nightmare, it wakes you up. I don't know, sometimes dreams will wake you up, I suppose. I've had a few of those. They wake you up and you're kind of like, whoa. Yep. You know? and, and so, but it troubled him, didn't it? And that's what it says there. It's, his spirit was troubled. So what's the answer to that? Why was Nebuchadnezzar troubled? Well, he had a bad dream. He had a bad dream, and he couldn't remember it. I, I find it in my experience, I barely ever remember dreams I have. I'll, I'll wake up and know that I've had a dream, but I don't know the specifics of the dream. I've just gotten, gotten used to it. And if I remember the dream, it's usually something I write down because it's, it's, it's an actually a, a pretty interesting dream. But what he saw kind of startled him. And he awoke from this revelation. His mind was working. He was trying to understand what it all meant. So early in the the next morning, he sent for all his advisors. Look at verse 2. And and I think we'll just maybe read on. We'll get the overall story here. It says, Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now isn't it interesting? It didn't just say he commanded just all the magicians to come. He did call the magicians, but who else? He called the astrologers. And then he called... So the magicians would be those who probably delved into black magic and those kinds of things, the occult. The astrologers, what? They supposedly read the stars, right? And could tell you the future by reading the stars. And sorcerers, they're like witches and... and uh, um, wizards and stuff. The Chaldeans is very interesting. The Chaldeans were kind of like the scientists of the age. 
You know, they would they would use what they studied around and then make predictions about what they studied around them in nature and science. So he called all of them, didn't he? So I had a dream. I'm impressed. It's incredibly important. I can't remember it. You guys are the ones who supposedly talk to the gods. So God, these gods are probably trying to tell me something. I want you to tell me what my my dream was and what's going on. So here they are. They come before him, and at his command, they're silent, and he told them that he had had a dream, and he wished to know what it meant. Verse 3, And the king said unto them, I've dreamed a dream. My spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. Now this is very interesting, because that language Syriac is a language that was only used by those who were well-educated. So I took that, it's kind of like, it's kind of like Latin, exactly, Russ. You knew exactly where it was. It's like if you went into the Catholic Church and the priest didn't want you to know what they were talking about, they'd start speaking in Latin. See? So here, there's an audience. Besides all these magicians and astrologers that are there before Nebuchadnezzar, there's also an audience. Well, these guys don't want the audience to know what they're saying. So they start speaking to the king in Syriac. And notice what they do. They build him up. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing's gone from me. I can't remember it, basically is what he's saying. If you'll not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. So here he is. He's a pagan king. They worship all these false gods. And these guys are supposed to be the mouthpieces of the gods. And he's, he's like saying, you, why can't you tell me what the dream was? I mean, you speak for the gods. It's funny. I looked up Chaldean right? Dictionary. One of the definitions was a wise man skilled in occult learning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were kind of the the scientists, sort of, and and uh, like I said, nature. They studied nature, and they would. So he has all this group together that represented all their false gods. Essentially, is why they were here. Now, there's a reason why God allowed that. There's a reason why God didn't let Nebuchadnezzar remember his dream, and there's a reason why he didn't call for Daniel to begin with. They called for all the magicians and astrologers. Let them prove that their gods are the true God, right? Very similar to the Joseph situation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So here Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look, do what it is that you do. Tell me the dream and the interpretation and I'm going to pour out riches on you like I've been doing all the time. But if you can't do it, I'll know that you guys are a bunch of fakes and you've been duping me for years and who knows how long. And I'm going to cut you up in pieces. I'm going to destroy you, essentially, right? But they sought to change Nebuchadnezzar's mind. They, they staunchly refused, basically, didn't they? And he charged them with trying to buy time. And in fact, in the, in the Hebrew language there, it, it essentially means buy time. And so, if you look at verse 7, or you go down through 7 to 11, I'll, I'll move along kind of quick, quickly here. They said what? There's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. 
Now, that's an admission, isn't it? (laughs) There is none other than that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, the whole fabric of the king's faith was built around a belief that the gods communicated with men through these various channels that these guys, these counselors represented. And their hesitancy to comply immediately with his request, well, that made him pretty suspicious, didn't it? He was suspicious that they had conspired together to take advantage of him. And were they doing that? And this is what God was wanting to show, see? Having a, he had this, essentially you could call it a stable of religionists on hand to press the experiences and and they came up with these doctrines and such. But God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. What verse are you on? I'm going to, verse 12. So what these guys admit? They admitted that no mere human could tell what it meant. In other words, they were saying, well, it's out of our hands. Huh? Yeah, they were trying to buy time. See, it's out of our hands. There's no man on earth that can do what the king's asking to be done. Well, that's an admission that they, they're fakes. They've come right out. They admitted that their own deceptions, uh, that, that everything they'd given were deceptions, you know. So, what happens? The king gets mad. So, you know, he was, he was angry. He commanded destruction of all the, quote, wise men of Babylon. Verse 12, For this cause the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Let me tell you something. This guy was the king of the civilized world. I would say he was pretty used to getting his way, don't you? I mean, he got his way. And, and he wasn't getting his way here. And he threw kind of a tantrum, didn't he? And he, he, he was very angry and he said, I want all the wise men in Babylon destroyed. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. And so what we find is that only a source from beyond could give an answer to the dream that was given to him from beyond, right? And so God's a... Uh, the only being that will know the answers of this. And, and likewise, go to verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Now, Daniel and his, when Daniel and his friends were taken by Babylon and brought in, they were, really, they were young guys, weren't they? They were basically teenagers. And they'd been put into the school of Babylon to learn Babylon's ways. And you'll notice too that if you go back to Daniel chapter 1 and you read about that, that Nebuchadnezzar changed their names from Hebrew to Babylonian names. And it's very interesting. If you look at Daniel's name and 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 his three friends' names, they're all Hebrew, and they have something to do with God. God is mentioned by their name. The, you know. Well, you can't go into a kingdom that 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 worships Baal and worships um, all these other false pagan gods, yet have a name that points to the God of heaven. So they changed their names, see. 
Belshazzar and and these other names, which basically meant you know a a follower of Baal or you know yeah the sun moon and stars essentially right pointed to them so here's here's Daniel and it's probably they've been there about four years I think and uh, um, this is right after Nebuchadnezzar essentially had said hey they're ten times wiser than any of the other guys you know which is why I said why didn't he send for Daniel first well essentially God didn't want Daniel to go first he wanted to show these frauds first see so now they come to Daniel and he's saying, why is the king acting so hasty? Then Arioch made the, the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. So then, you know, Daniel appears and Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, remembers, oh, these guys were so much wiser than the others. Okay, I'll give you some time, you know. And, and I have really no doubts that that's probably why he gave them more time. He knew, hey, these guys were, they did test out much wiser. They're younger, they're much wiser. They, in other words, I brought them from a different land. They haven't been duping me for years like these other guys look like they have. You know? And so, then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Remember, the Bible says that God is going to um, come to his prophets in visions and dreams, right? So he comes in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. That's the first thing Daniel did. He blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. It's very interesting here, you read this. We don't know Daniel's prayer here, do we? It never mentions his prayer. But it does mention here that God is blessing and thanking God, which is a good lesson for us, isn't it? And He changeth the times, and this is verse 21, And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? Yeah, he asked them for them to be spared. Yeah, he did, didn't he? He and, and if you go through history, how many times you can find, look up how many, just a good Bible lesson, look up how many times the unrighteous were spared because of a righteous person was there. That'll tell you something about our God. He's a merciful God, isn't he? He's, lot. Yeah, Lot is one case. Yeah. Abraham, I mean, you could go through and you can just see it. Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Is that something, you know, that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Now, do you think Nebuchadnezzar really what believed? Rat. Yeah. What a rat. I mean, he just said save their lives and then he's turning around. I, I, well, Arioch was the soldier that was in charge of killing all of them. 
I found a man. Like he'd been searching out for a man to, to get the king's dreams straightened down. To, you know, I think Nebuchadnezzar knew better. And look, notice what the king does. He said he answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof?" Well, he didn't mince words at all. He went right to it, didn't he? Are you able to do it? I gave you time. Are you going to be able to do it? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and soothsayers show unto the king? So Daniel's answer to Nebuchadnezzar, well, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar jumps on him. Are you able to do it? And, he's, and Daniel's kind of like, you know, kind of like when sometimes your kids do to you, you know. He says, oh, well, hey, your wise guys couldn't do it. Could they? You know, <laughs> kind of little banter there, you know. Right? Let's go to question four. Who gave this dream to the king? It's the very next verse, Daniel 2, verse 28. So Daniel's answering him and he says, But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. So who did Daniel tell Nebuchadnezzar gave him the, the dream? God the, the God of heaven. He said, it wasn't these pagan false gods, these wise men that have been telling you about all the time. It's the God that's in heaven gave you this dream. What was the dream to reveal? Look at verse 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Future. So what? Yeah, the dream was to reveal the future world. I mean, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was questioning. He was thinking about the future, and that's why God it prompted God. God was reading his heart, his mind. It prompted God to show him to answer his questions. It was an attempt by God to draw Nebuchadnezzar to God, the true God, and so. It should be comforting to us to know that God looks at our hearts and He's always trying to draw us to Him. And He's dealing with us is just as important as He's dealing with this King of the entire world, you see. So after making it clear to the King that the purpose of the God in heaven and giving Him the dream was to reveal, reveal what? What was in the latter days. Then Daniel goes on, verse 36 here, he begins to relate the dream itself. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, like you mentioned earlier, Deb, this really parallels a lot with Joseph, doesn't it? There's a dramatic parallel here. And just clear, the, the, the Pharaoh, he kept it, the, the different one difference is the Pharaoh remembered his dreams, he just didn't know what they meant. you know. And so, but here, Daniel says, here's the dream. He says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. So first off, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're not the king of the world because you did anything. God sets up kingdoms, and God of heaven has given you this kingdom, and power, and, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. That could have made him mad and said, off with his head. Right there. Well, right. 
But he had already relayed, you know, here's this statue you had and all these things. And so now he's interpreting the dream. He says, you are the head of gold. You're the head of gold of that statue, that idol that you saw, that giant image. And after thee shall arise another kingdom. Well, that's got to be another kind of a smack down to Nebuchadnezzar. Because he was wanting his kingdom to last for eternity, see? So he says, no, after thee, which means, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to come to an end. Shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the king shall be divided, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up... That's important for us to put back our mind. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Oh, I didn't bring them. Oh, I needed it. I wanted it. I had my li- I'm sorry. I had my list and I, I forgot to bring them downstairs. Okay. For as much as thou sawest, verse 45, for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron and the brass, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof, sure. Nebuchadnezzar, he was what? He was a worshiper of the gods of the Chaldeans, right? And he was an idolater. So God wanted to bring him something that was going to grab his attention. So he brought him a dream, and and here in this dream was an image. It was something that would grab his his attention. And so... We find that there were earthly kingdoms that were represented by this image. And below the head of gold was a body composed of inferior metals descending in value until they reached, of course, the the feet and toes where you have the iron and clay mixed. The whole image was then dashed to pieces, made like empty chaff. It was finally blown away. No place to be found. And in the place of these kingdoms, what Daniel said, the kingdom of God shall be set up and It'll reign for eternity. So number six, whom did the head of gold represent? Bat, you know, Daniel 2, 37 and 38. He said, thou art this head of gold. It was the literal kingdom of Babylon, wasn't it? In an abundance of gold, it's interesting, you know, you find some of these archaeological, uh, you look at some of these archaeological discoveries and they discovered a a treasure room really not too long ago just a few years ago and it was traced back to the Babylonian period and it was filled with, in fact, they found it completely by accident they were digging for something else and actually this hole opened up and dropped in and here's this room <laughs> you know and it was 
filled with gold. Golden images, gold, everything was gold. Um, Herodotus describes in lavish terms how gold sparkled in the sacred temples of the city. The image of the God, the throne on which he sat, and the table and the altar were all made of gold. The prophet Jeremiah compares Babylon to a golden cup. That's Jeremiah 51 verse 7. Um, the historian Pliny, he describes the robes of the priests as interlaced with gold. Everything in Babylon was based upon gold. Its city was a wonder of the world. Um, the way it was laid out, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was no idiot. He was a very intelligent man. And uh, he was an engineer. He wasn't only a military power. I mean, he was an engineer. He was, he was a very intelligent guy. He's laid out the city. And it's incredible what, how big and, and, and the way the city was set out and, and impenetrable, you know. At least they thought, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, it represents the literal kingdom of Babylon. Question seven, what kingdoms were to follow Babylon? Well, what did it say in verse 39 and 40? And after thee shall arise another inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. So what kingdoms were to follow Babylon? Three. Well, right, three inferior kingdoms that were represented by these metals that weren't as precious, let's say, that the world values as precious. Silver, brass, and iron. What did the silver breast and arms represent of this image? Well, in Daniel 5, verse 28, this is where we get the writing on the wall. You remember remember this? Yeah. That, that hand shows up and it writes those words. You know, many, many... Yeah, right. Verse 28 says, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the Median, took the kingdom. Being about three score and two years old, he was, what, 62 years old. So, what did the silver breast and arms represent? The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The seceding kingdom, Medo-Persia, is indicated by those uh, breast and arms of silver, the great image. It was to be inferior to the preceding kingdom as silver is inferior to gold. The Medo-Persian empire was inferior to the Babylonian empire in much the same way. Um, and as we contrast the two kingdoms, we find that though, um, you know, the Medes and Persians had more territory. Do you know that? Their kingdom had a lot more territory, but it was inferior in luxury and magnificence to Babylon. In fact, the Median and Persian conquerors adopted the culture of Babylon, their civilization. They adopted that for their own because they, were, they weren't as developed, you know. <clears throat> in fact... They conquered through stratagem. <laughs> you know, Belshazzar, he thought, oh, we're going to, you know, the, the city of Babylon with its walls, it was, it was virtually impregnable. And so what he did, he knew that this feast was coming up 
And so he stationed, he divided his army in like thirds. One dug this great big temporary pond, you know, let's say north of the, the kingdom, and then he had an army sitting at the gates uh, just north of the, the city and an army sitting like so many miles south of the city. And when they, they reached a particular point, he signaled and they busted the, you know, the, the, the uh, floodgates open so that the river Euphrates went into that big lake that they dug. And he told his other armies, he said, when you see the water drop down to where you can ford it, go into the city. And they did. Now, nothing would have happened if the gates inside there would have been locked and closed, those brass gates. But that night, they were open. In fact, the Bible, God says that He will open the gates for Cyrus. If you, you know, look back into the history books and look back into the Bible, where it mentions Cyrus by name. Um, how long did the Medo, how long did the Medo-Persians rule? I throw that question in there to see if anybody looks through history. <laughs> number nine. Oh yeah. I just that's a question of curiosity. Is that why there's no line? Yeah, there's no line. There's no Bible verse. Essentially, history records that they ruled for over two hundred years. Number ten. What did the brass symbolize? Daniel. We gotta go to Daniel eight and find this answer. Verses twenty and twenty one. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. That's Daniel 8, verse 20. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So we're looking for that, that rough goat there. What did the brass symbolize? Who came after Medo-Persia? Greece. It was the kingdom of Greece. You know, it's very, it's very. I don't know. I'm a, I'm, I'm a history buff. I like to read about these ancient civilizations and stuff. Ancient Greece was originally made up of what would you would call small city states. Okay, they had a common language, but they didn't work together. In fact, Sparta and Athens actually despised each other, but they are all part of the Greek territory. Let's say. It's, it would be kind of like um, West Lafayette not liking Lafayette. Only they weren't so close. They were separated, Sparta and Athens. But they did come together as Darius, who wanted to destroy them, uh, doing part to their a part they played in the Ionian. It's called the Ionian Revolt. You know, Darius was going around conquering the world, and he was taking over places. And here he comes to, to Iona, and they re, they're fighting him. And Sparta and Athens supported them in their fight against Darius. So, I mean, strategically thinking, if you looked at a map, you'd say, Sparta's small, Athens is small, why is he even wasting his time? Well, he was ticked off. How dare they help this, you know, this little Icona come against me? So that's the whole reason why he went in there. <laughs> he goes in there to... to you know, to, to conquer them. That's why he invaded Greece. But this time, 
he had to go the second time through his son Xerxes. Have you heard the name Xerxes? Um, because Darius had died. But he still wanted them punished. And this is where that famous story of Leonidas and the 300 Spartans you've heard about. Remember that movie that came out a few years ago called 300? It's about the 300 Spartans there at uh, um, Thermopylae. There's the Battle of Thermopylae where there was this little channel where they could, you know, the Darius and, and the Persians could get through, but Leonidas and his Spartans, and there was, it wasn't just them. There were some Greeks there too. There, but they roughly had maybe 7,000, and I've read estimates that Darius had a million soldiers show up. Right. Now, there have been more recent history, historians that have said it's more like 100,000 to 300,000 yeah. is what they're saying. But, well, yeah. And there were two battles going on at the same time. There was a battle at sea with the Greeks' navy also because Darius had a two-point plan. I won't get into it, but, but that's where that story comes from. But much later, after the Macedonians brought all the city-states of Greece together is when we see their first king of Greece, and his name was Alexander the Great. And he was called the Great because of the swiftness of his military victories um, <clears throat> and, and his conquering of the unknown world. People would, he was, if I'm not mistaken, Alexander was outnumbered virtually in every single battle that he fought. But they gained such a reputation that when somebody knew that they were coming, they feared and they tried to, to settle with them without a fight, even though they had him outnumbered. They just feared Alexander that much because his warriors were warriors. I mean, they, uh, his Greek army. I mean, just take Sparta, for example. Those guys fought to the death. They thought it a fantastic honor to die on the battlefield. Yeah. That the gods would reward them. That they've just, that, you know. And this is the mindset behind Alexander and his army. They were Greeks, you know, Macedonians. You know, they, it's so... The deciding point in the conflict between the Greeks and the Persians was at Arbella in 331 BC where the Greeks were outnumbered 20 to 1 by the Persians. And yet they won decisively. They, they took over. And here's prophecy being fulfilled. The Medes and Persians would be inferior. inferior you know, the, the Greeks would come in, they would be conquered by an inferior kingdom. And then, you know, of course, the history of Alexander, after he conquered the, the world, so to speak, he, he got drunk. He, they said that he drunk the full Herculean cup. It basically was six quarts of liquor. This, this is the, the mythology of it, you know. And, oh yeah, these guys were wicked, man. I'm telling you, they're wicked. Um, Xerxes was, you know, I mean... Just murder, if you, if you want murder mysteries, they're not so much mysteries, but you get into these guys. <laughs> you got to be looking over your shoulder the whole time, you know. But uh, he died, Alexander the Great died, young age, 32 years old. Can you believe it? He's 30, what, 28 to 30, he conquers the world. And he dies at 32. Drunk. Gets a fever because of alcohol poisoning, essentially, is what it was. It's really amazing. Then his empire was divided between his four generals, Ptolemy, Cassander, Lysimachus, 
and Selicus. And uh, we, that's explained in, you get into Daniel 8 a bit, you get into Daniel 11, actually. And you start to see where those lines go out in prophecy. Uh, question 11, what empire followed Greece? Daniel said in verse, Daniel 2 and verse 40, he said, the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, right? Daniel 8 Verse 23, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. That's interesting, isn't it, Russ? Because he's, he's going to be religious. He's going to have the state do his dirty work for him. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice, shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall, shall destroy many. Oh, that's incredible too. That's what uh, the way Rome actually came to power. Um, he shall stand up against the prince of princes. Who's that speaking of? Jesus. Jesus. So what kingdom was around when Jesus was here? If you look at Luke 2, it says, And it came to pass in those days, Luke 2 verse 1, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Who was it? It was, it was Rome. They followed Greece, right? The kingdom of Rome. The historian Gibbon says, The arms of the Republic, sometimes vanquished in battle, always victorious in war, advanced with rapid steps to the Euphrates, the Danube, the Rhine, and the ocean, and the images of the gold or silver or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. Isn't it amazing how in its description is in those uh, particular times in history that was like the prevalent metal it's just amazing like uh, the Greeks you know the Spartans one of the things that the Spartans did they they had weaponry that was made out of brass they had those big shields that they had and the spears they used were made out of brass it's a brass kingdom it's just it's just remarkable and then when you get into the beasts even you know, and you look at the different beasts, the lion, you know, you look at these things and that's, it's just, it just is just remarkable to me. What change was to come to the kingdom of iron? Question number 12. Daniel 2, 41 and 42. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be what? Divided. Divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly broken. So what was, what was the change that was going to come to this kingdom of iron or Rome? The answer is it's going to be divided into parts. Some strong, some not. Rome lost its iron tenacity, so to speak, and strength. If you read in history about how Rome fell, they they got more, and one of the things was they got more and more effeminate. They just didn't have the stomach to fight anymore. They became soft. And that's what these tribes then raised up. Because see, if you understand how Rome came to power, 
and we read there earlier where it says that they conquered many through peace, they would go into these city-states, like Greece had been, and they'd go in and they'd promise to be their ally and defend them against attacks from so-and-so, but then they never backed it up. And when that particular country would fall, then they would swoop in and they'd take, take over. So they grew and grew and grew, and essentially Rome was made up of different tribes that paid homage to Rome. Well, as they become weaker and weaker, then they got divided because those tribes said, hey, we can take them now. Their army became weaker and weaker and, and more sparse as they tried to conquer more and more. And then, you know, so these barbarian kingdoms, they took over. They, then Rome became divided. They, uh, I find it interesting, it says, these barbarian kingdoms differed greatly in military prowess as Gibbon states when he refers to, quote, the powerful monarchies of the Franks and the Visigoths, that's France and Spain, and the dependent kingdoms of the Sueves and the Burgundians, which is Portugal and Switzerland. Well, when you think of military powers, let me tell you something. You never think of Portugal, and you never think of the Swiss, do you? Switzerland, is to this day, is, quote, neutral. <laughs> right? But the Franks, at one time, the French, in fact, before Hitler invaded France in World War II, France had this... Um, persona by the world as being the greatest army in the world. Did you know that? Hitler shattered that when he invaded. But they thought France had the greatest army in the world at that time. And that comes from, you can trace it clear back to these tribes. Clear back then, the Franks, they were very powerful militarily. <laughs> and so was Spain. Spain was conquering the world, weren't they? With their navy and everything, they were considered power. But when you think of Portugal and Switzerland, they ain't. I mean, you know, and that's what they were saying. It's going to be divided. Some were, would be strong, some would not be strong. The ten toes of the image denote ten parts into which the Roman Empire was divided. This division was accomplished between 351 A.D. and 476 by varying barbarian tribes. And what did they do? They took over the territory of Western Rome. Who, you guys help me out here. The tribe name, the old name was, and what's the nation of today? The Alamini. Who's Germany. that? So you got, the, you got Germany. They tried to take over the world, didn't they? The Franks. Well, that's France. Burgundians. Switzerland. Yeah. The Swiss. Suevi. Portugal. Uh -huh. Portugal. Man, rest yourself small Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> England. <laughs> England. Would you say Britain? It says the English. British Empire. England. Yeah, the British. It says England. That's the country, <laughs> but the British Empire. Is yes, it would be British. Visigoths. Spain. The Spaniards. Spain. <laughs> my brain froze there for a minute. Lombards. Italy. Yeah. Italy, Italy, Italy. And then Italy, Italy, Italy. But something happened there and then they went away. <laughs> they ran away. We're out of here. And so we see, you know, this is what they're known as today, but this is what they were back then, those tribes. How would these kings try to strengthen themselves? Daniel two, verse forty three. These kings are you know, how are we gonna 
Right. Verse Daniel two verse forty three said they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men by intermarriage of royalty. We see this through history only. You know, it's it was almost like um, France and England were always fighting, right? But then, okay, if I can get the prince of England to marry the princess in France, we can have some peace. You know? Yeah, right. We can come together. We'll have it right. There were always these conflicts between these tribes. So they, they tried to do intermarriage to, to help ensure peace. And um, what was it I read? I think I put it in the lesson there. It says, um, these rulers finally resorted to intermarriage to help ensure peace until by the opening of the 20th century, it was asserted that every ranking hereditary ruler of Europe was related to the British royal family. <laughs> and if you look at it today, you look at the British, you know, you look over look at Great Britain and you see, you know, the Duke and, you know, they're all cousins, you know. And they go, they come from France or Britain or somewhere in Germany. Some of them married, you know, a German uh, princess or whatever. They're all related in some way. Now, what's interesting about this too is, and we need to understand that, um, this prophecy doesn't um, specifically say that there could not be a temporary union of some of these elements through the force of arms or, or politics. It does declare that the constituent nations, these nations, um, they won't cleave one to another. That's what God said. So we look at like the, the European Union they're still nations, even though they've come together. It's not, okay, we're all going to come together, and now we're going to be known as, you know, the European Union, we're just one country. You see what I'm saying? They all are nationalists. They all say, well, we're still France, even though we're part of the European Union. Right? So... Let's look at um, verse or uh, number fourteen. What eternal kingdom was to be set up in the days of these kings? Daniel two verse forty four. He said, "In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces, consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." What kings and what kingdom is Daniel talking about here? The kingdom of God, right? Many commentators have attempted to make this detail of the prophecy a prediction, actually, of the first coming of Jesus. Have you run into that? Have you seen that? I've seen some of them say that. Um, and then they say, well, this is the gospel going to the world. But this kingdom was not to exist um, <coughs> contemporaneously with those other four kingdoms it was to succeed the iron and clay phase, wasn't it? Because it came after that, right? And so, um, that didn't happen when Christ first came here on earth. He was here during the time of Rome, not the division of Rome. So, Because it was still in the future at that time, wasn't it? Um, and he clearly stated to his disciples, Jesus did at the Last Supper, about that. 
It is to be set up when Christ comes at the last day to judge the living and the dead. You can look up Second Timothy on that, Matthew 25. I mean, we can see that. So this, this represents, um, this is God's kingdom. It's uh, the one that, that comes in here. What verse, or uh, number 15, what represented this eternal kingdom in the dream? It was the, the stone, wasn't it? Daniel 2, verse 45. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to the pass hereafter. The dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. So what's the answer? It was the stone. But what was something interesting about the stone? It was cut without hands. What does that mean? God did it. Well, yeah, it means it, it wasn't created. It's of superhuman yeah. origin. Put it that way. Yeah, it wasn't created. It, it wasn't, it wasn't founded by men. Man-made, yeah. It was. It was God. It's from God. Some people miss that. I'm like, wow, that seems obvious. <laughs> Why would he mention without hands? It's not man-made kingdom. So you know, no military conquest by men. No, you know, so conquest through. Uh, stratagem, you know, the beast uh, coming in and, and being a church state, none of that. It's, it comes from God. Number 16, what must take place before Christ's kingdom is established? Matthew 24 and verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So the gospel's got to be taken to the whole world before the end comes, right? The book of Daniel teaches us that not just an, any authority, authority will do in spiritual matters. Not just any religion will do. And not just any style of prophetic interpretation will do. Because God what? God plans the days. He plans the years. He has a purposed agenda. He has an unfailing goal. He'll end all sin for all eternity, but in a manner that preserves the freedom of the beings that He has made. And that's what I like about it. God is treading through history step by step. Step by step, truth is on the march. A day of accounting is coming in which we'll see the return of our King. Jesus, the Rock of Ages, is returning to this earth where every eye shall see Him. So can you see the importance of knowing and understanding prophecy. And this is, you know what's really interesting? Another tidbit about Daniel 2 that's very interesting to me. Daniel gives the king the dream and he gives the interpretation. And the interpretation of the dream is from his time, right? The kingdom of Babylon, from his time to the very end of the world and he does it in a paragraph about this big. It's, it's remarkable. So what we've gotten is he's revealed from that time to the end of time for us, he's given us the giant picture. And now as we go and get into uh, Daniel 7 next week, which is what we'll do, we'll get into Daniel 7 and we'll start to see the big picture, we'll start to see more and more pieces of puzzle added to it so that it expands and gives us more definition of the big picture. Because God does not want us to be deceived when it comes to prophecy. He doesn't want us to be deceived in any way. 
as far as that goes. But um, he doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to be prepared for what's coming, and he wants us to prepare others. God came to a pagan king by a dream because he wanted to save Nebuchadnezzar. Do you believe that he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to be in the kingdom of God? He does. He wants everybody. So he gives his people prophecy so that we may know the future because God said, you'll know I am God because I told you before and then it came to pass. When his people go out, like we're doing here and we study Daniel, we're showing God told us before it's come to pass, they'll have faith that you follow the true God and I want to know about the true God. And on a personal note, that's what brought me into the faith was prophecy. In fact, it was this Daniel chapter 2, which means a lot to me in that respect. My brother told me Alexander the Great was in the Bible, and I couldn't believe him. I said, you're kidding me, because I knew about Alexander the Great. I'd read up on him in, in the Greek history. And then he said, well, not by name, but I'll show you. And he went through, and he showed me that Cyrus is mentioned by name in the Bible, and I was stunned. Stunned, and that led me to seek the true God. So I praise the Lord that he's given us prophecy and, and, and the Spirit to understand it. And so we'll see in the coming weeks we'll get more and more picture of the big picture. We'll get, you know, it's like we started a photo album and this is on the front. It's the big picture, and then we open it up and we'll get smaller pictures that, that uh, will tell us more and more about it. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we can... Uh, uh, get on with the rest of the Sabbath here. Father in heaven, we do thank you again so very, very much for this opportunity to open your holy word and and to study uh, the prophecy of Daniel 2. We pray that uh, we have a right understanding and uh, that we can share this truth with our family and friends and those around us so that they may be warned of, of what soon is to come upon the world. But more than that, to know that you are the true God and that you wish all to be saved. We thank you so much for being with us and guiding us through um, this particular study and for being with us on this Holy Sabbath day. We pray that you will continue to bless us not only throughout this day but in the coming week ahead. May we be a good witness to those around us and witness to at least one person, Father, of the love of Jesus. We thank you so much for hearing this prayer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.